0: Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at Babbel.com slash BlueWire. That's 60% off at Babbel.com slash BlueWire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash BlueWire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future
1: Socks podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. Good to be with you again. Appreciate you listening every single week through the Blue Wire network. Every Tuesday, here we are again sending out another podcast for you. Thanks so much for coming back or tuning in for the first time. Welcome in James Fox alongside us. He is the senior editor at future socks. I'm also the lead editor at future socks. And together we are the future socks podcast. We're also partnered with SocksMachine.com. If you'd like to become a patron and support us even more so than you already do consider becoming a patron because it helps us grow and do more and do more and do more. And that's what we want to continue to keep doing for you. So we appreciate all the support. Go to futuresocks.com for all the information. James, there's a lot to get to you today. We have an interview upcoming with Mark Gonzalez, longtime sports journalist and a fixture in this town. If you follow sports, like I say in the interview, you know who Mark Gonzalez is. So excited for the listener to hear that. He touches on a few things that are relevant to what we're doing here at Future Sox, including the MLB draft hearing some perspective from scouts and also looks across the organization and gives his evaluation after knowing them pretty well because he started the beat in Chicago in 2005, a good year to start with the White Sox, went all the way through to the late 2010s, and of course you know him as well from covering the Cubs. And here we are, James, talking about the White Sox. We already had our big league conversation last week with Josh Nelson. This is a little bit of a reset for us here, James, because there's some minor league news that we need to hit on, including Norhe Vera making his professional debut for an affiliate. I mean, that's a big deal. That's a huge deal. There's some scouting going on within the organization with their own players. So maybe we'll see a call up. We have to talk about the major league baseball draft coming up in July, as well as some players that are doing pretty well in, um, in the big leagues right now that were former White Sox. So all of that is on tap prior to Mark Gonzalez. But first, James, welcome in. Let's start with Norhe Vera. I mean, this is finally what we've been looking for. Pretty huge development now that we're into June. We get to see Vera pitch for an affiliate.
2: Yeah, so, you know, I think definitely the the best pitching prospect in the system. I mean, I know guys like Christian Mina have been exciting. Christian er, and uh, Sean Burke has made his way up to double-A. Now, which which is interesting, too, but nobody has the type of upside that Norie Vera has. You know, I think he's 22 now. He was signed out of Cuba. You know, all the reports and people that I've talked to say that he looked really, really good out in the desert. I mean, he was pitching an extended spring, recovering from a lat injury. He was sitting 96 to 99 with just nasty stuff. So, you know, he's going to go to Kannapolis, um, you know, the, the day this post-Tuesday they play. I would imagine he will pitch... This week at some point. Um, it hasn't been announced when, but you know, you can tune into MILB TV to see uh, the Canapolis Cannonballers and he, he's one that you should uh, watch. I think he could move pretty quickly. I think if he, you know, I don't, I don't think this is a league that should give him too many problems. So I wouldn't be surprised if he ends the season at Winston-Salem um, and then you're talking, you know. Birmingham next year and he's going to be on an innings limit I would imagine because he just hasn't pitched that much but you know he's really exciting I know somebody that you're super high on and is definitely a top five prospect in this system for sure
1: yeah 22 years old just turned 22 and now you want to kind of slow your roll a little bit this year given the developments to the start of the season where he was injured up until boy late in May or so when he was finally throwing again uh, so that's huge. I mean, he's got two plus pitches, a fastball, and a really good slider. So we'll see how that develops. And you just want to see him work. I mean, a guy, like I said, at 22 years old, can kind of skyrocket through the system quickly if all things work. So maybe in two years we'll see him in the big leagues. But who knows how that works out. So the Norhe Vera news is really encouraging. Here's something else that's encouraging, James. Rick Hahn in Double A scouting a player. Give us the lowdown here.
2: Yeah. So I don't know for sure. Like, you know, maybe Rick Hahn went in and saw the Tennessee volunteers because Drew Gilbert and that team is loaded with, you know, potential options for the White Sox in the upcoming July draft. But, you know, I was told that Rick Hahn and Chris Getz um, were in Tennessee for the Cubs, what is it? The Cubs A affiliate, Tennessee Smokies. So Tennessee um, to see the Birmingham Barons where Lenyon Sosa is. And it was basically there to see, Lenny and Sosa, you know, there's other players. There's Cespedes and a whole bunch of other guys in Double A. But you know, my understanding is like this could possibly be. Wondering whether they should promote Lenyon Sosa straight from double A to the big leagues or whether, you know, they make another move and he goes to Charlotte first. But I think he's definitely on the radar. We've been talking about him. I mean, it's like a 144 WRC plus, I believe, like in double A with 10 homers. I mean, he's really been very, very good. Now, the one thing that I would push back against is just, you know, he has struggled when he's gone to new levels. Like if you look at, you know, his history. Now, he's never been this good before, but he's always been young for every level he's at. He's always taken a little bit of time to get going, and then he's been pretty much league average everywhere. So, is that an indicator that he would go to Charlotte and struggle initially, or he would come straight to Chicago and struggle initially? No, but it's worth noting that that's like in this guy's history. But he's 22 years old. Um, he definitely has a lot more upside than a Yolbert Sanchez. Now, I, I could completely understand where. You know, if Rick Hahn's going to call a guy up, he wants to call a guy up that's going to stay up and not have to go back down a bunch of times, right? So, you know, this seems to fit the profile of, okay, this could be our second baseman for a while, whereas Yolbert, maybe they see as a utility type, so they're really not as worried about just like getting him to the big leagues as a 25-year-old. It's something to monitor for sure because, you know, they've already made the Dallas Keichel move. I would imagine Josh Harrison would be the next domino to fall. So, you know... I think we should have clarity over the next month or so, I would think. But, you know, it's it's definitely interesting that Han was there specifically to see Lenny and Sosa.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely a big deal. We saw the way that the White Sox trusted Romy Gonzalez with some playing time, and they weren't afraid to continue to move him up the system when things were going well for him. And Lenny Sosa, everything is going well for him, and this isn't just a trend. I mean, it's been pretty consistent this season. And Gilbert Sanchez, that's a great point. He's older, maybe he can be more consistent as not somebody who you want to give plate appearances to every single day, uh, but. The fact that the White Sox are interested, it's even maybe a move to look for next year to say, you know, Mendick and Leary and Tim Anderson right now are doing the job. But realistically, how are we going to feel second base moving forward for multiple seasons? Maybe Lenyon Sos is that guy. So let's just uh, let's stay optimistic here. And hopefully that's the case. James, this is the moment we've all been waiting for. The Arizona Complex League and the Dominican Summer League start. What do you got? <laughs> Who are we looking for? And is the Arizona Complex League, is that is that going to be worth a follow this year?
2: I mean, you could follow some of the guys. It's, it's very strange because the season started, you know, yesterday, Monday, Monday, the 6th as of this recording. But it's weird because the draft doesn't take place till July 17th. So like the players in the Arizona Complex League are, you know, some high school players from last year and recent international signings and free agents and guys out of indie ball. So it's, you know. You know, to be as frank as possible, I'm not sure that the Arizona Complex League team is gonna be very good record-wise, just because of how the White Sox typically do business. Like they took high schoolers last year, but those guys are in full season A ball right now, the two the two big ones that everybody knows about. And in the international market, they've been signing so many like older Cuban types that those guys are at full season affiliates too. So the types of players that are in Arizona right now are super raw. You know, so it's just it, it, it might be a struggle. There are some guys to pay attention to. You know, we talked about Yoemi in Alaska a couple of weeks ago. Um, Dominican Righty that Bill Mitchell of baseball America saw in the backfield, said that he was the best pitcher, you know, in extended spring. So he he's in the rotation. Um you know, there's another Carlos Stroza is another pitcher that was in the DSL last year. That's interesting. Those are probably the two most interesting arms on the team. And then there's some position players. Victor cazada was a international signing last year for over 500 K. He he should be the third baseman every day in Arizona. He hit six homers in the Dominican last year. Uh, Manuel Gariman is a Venezuelan catcher that's there. And then Cameron Butler is their 15th round draft pick last year out of a tiny like, Christian high school in California where he put up just absolutely absurd numbers. Um so he'll be in Arizona too for now. And then you know, you have some guys rehabbing there, but you know, th- this first month there it's just going to be kind of weird. You're going to be looking for the guys that you know and then some pop-up performances and stuff along those lines until the draft happens and then that team will really, you know, get stocked with players. It's just one of the weird uh outcomes of a late draft. And then the DSL I mean, two you know the two most popular or the two most well-known players there, obviously. Eric Hernandez, super exciting. He's a top thirty guy in the system. Seventeen-year-old Dominican that can really hit, supposedly. And then their recent signing, the five hundred thousand dollar Cuban Lloyd El Chapelli, will either play second or the outfield most day. So those two guys are really interesting. Down there, you know, there's another $400,000 Venezuelan shortstop that's like a defensive first guy and a couple pitchers that I wrote up to. So, you know, they they had a a 20-player international class this year, highlighted by Oscar Colas and Eric Hernandez and Chapelle. Colas is obviously stateside in Winston-Salem, but, you know, the rest of those guys are all in the Dominican Summer League. And, uh, you know, for anyone that doesn't know, they play their games at like, 11 o'clock in the morning, our time. So, you know, if you go to milb.com, all the results and stuff are on there and I'm tweeting about them sometimes, but uh, yeah. So, you know, those, those leagues, you just kind of, you pay attention just to, for loud, loud tools essentially. And, you know, the stats don't really matter that much, but you know, guys that throw high nineties or bat speed and stuff like that is, is interesting. And then when guys get promoted to full season, that's when you know that they've, you know, done pretty well in those leagues. That's
1: very well said, and, and really well up on your on your stuff, James. As always, appreciate everything that you do. Adrian Gill, too. By the way, he's he's going to start in the Dominican. It's somebody that we've been keeping an eye on for a little while now. So uh, another name. Yeah, he's in a mind.
2: he's like a Freddie Garcia trained guy. So he he was yes. he was one of their signings last year, and then he got hurt. Right. I don't know what the injury is, but you know he got hurt and he didn't really pitch that much. So he's back there again.
1: So it's good to see him, the right-hander, getting some work in this year. We'll see. And then, too, what you got with the MLB draft. I mean, that's another point that's rather interesting is those draft picks go right to short season, and likely a lot of them will be spending a brief period in Arizona unless they're advanced college players where they can handle maybe an affiliate like Kanapolis or something. But typically, these draft picks up coming because the draft is July 17th this year. And the White Sox picked 26th. So there's been mocks. I know you and Josh put out a mock draft over at Sox Machine, but there are some names linked already to the White Sox that you're really excited about, as well as our guy Josh Nelson. Just want to get your thoughts on what has changed since we last spoke about the draft and where the White Sox stand.
2: So not a ton, but I mean, they picked twenty-six, so they have a lot of options. And, and like, look, the college pitcher light always goes off because, you know, I could see Rick on just making an executive decision to take a college pitcher. That's that's still on the board. Drew Gilbert is the center fielder at Tennessee. He's been mentioned a ton. Um, They're very familiar with him. He could be gone though. And I don't know if that's option a, but I know that's an option for me. I would prefer they do the same thing they did last year and just load up with two prep bats at the beginning, preferably two prep left-handed bats to add to the system. Um, you know, Josh Nelson in our latest mock draft had them projected to take Tucker Toman, who's a switch hitting shortstop out of South Carolina. Um, th- there has been, you know, some indication that the White Sox are very high on him as well as a couple other teams in the 20s. I would be very much on board with that pick. Now, you know, they were also linked to Roman Anthony, who's a big power hitting outfielder out of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida, you know, as an option there, too. The thing that's interesting about that is Prospects Live um, came out with their latest mock draft. and, And some of the guys at Prospect Live are really, really plugged in. And Joe Doyle is a friend of the podcast. We'll have him on closer to the draft. I mean, he nailed the Colson Montgomery interest last year, you know, privately and publicly on our show. He has them taking Tucker Tolman as well in the first round. And in the second round, he has them getting Roman Anthony, who I was just talking about. That would be like an incredible first two days where you add two more left-handed bats to the system to go along with Colson Montgomery and Wes Kath, who, you know, seems to be figuring it out a little bit down in low A finally after some rough starts. So, you know, keep adding young left-handed bats to the system. And I would, I would be a big fan of that strategy, but, you know, we, we're about a month out right now and things do change quite often couple of names to keep an eye
1: on if you're a White Sox fan and interested in the draft because the draft is prevalent enough to help the White Sox get out of the cellar in terms of prospect rankings among the organizations in Major League Baseball. Still 30th, but again, you know things can change mid-season around August or so, so hopefully we see some change in the White Sox status. And what we like to do is follow draft philosophy ever since Mike Shirley took over. It'll continue. Stay tuned to SoxMachine.com and FutureSox.com for all your draft coverage. Now, James, before we get to Mark Gonzalez, let's talk about this. huh? Connor Pilkington, Luis Gonzalez, and Steele Walker are all in the majors. How about that one? Pilkington traded for Cesar Hernandez. The White Sox let Luis Gonzalez pass their waivers, and the Giants claimed him, if I got that correct. And Steele Walker was traded straight up for Nomar Mazzara. Here they are in the bigs, with other teams. Now, you can justify every move. I mean, the steal one, it would be tough, but you can still justify it. You know, Omar Mazzara was a failure. But I understand every decision at the time. However, now, in hindsight, is for us to celebrate former White Sox doing, doing well for themselves in the bigs.
2: So I will say with Luis Gonzalez, I mean, it was like a procedural move, you know, I mean, he was on the 40 man roster, but got hurt while in the minors, the White Sox tried to slip him through waivers to get him off the 40 man, you know, and the cynical side of people says like, Oh yeah, that's because they didn't want to pay him. But I mean, maybe so, but I mean, he was going to have shoulder surgery. They were going to re-sign him to a minor league deal just to get him off the 40 so they could use the 40 man spot. The San Francisco Giants are 29th out of 30th in the claiming order, and they claimed him because I think Farhan Zidi might run the best front office in baseball right now. But you know, some swing changes, and he he always had some hit ability. And you know, I don't think he's this guy, but he's definitely a big leaguer. He was you know rookie of the month or rookie of the week or something with the Giants. So that's a pretty interesting one. Connor Pilkington needed to be added to the 40 man. I just think the Sox just didn't see him as a future member of their rotation. And they traded him for Cesar Hernandez in season. That's a deal I'd make a hundred out of 100 times. Didn't work out with Cesar Hernandez, you know, Pilkington went to the Cleveland guardians and they, you know, turn anybody into a starting pitcher. So, you know, that's, that's an okay trade, I think. And then let's still Steel Walker, no Marmazara trade. Not very good, obviously you know? And at the time, Steel Walker was like already 22 or 23 in high A and he couldn't hit lefties in high A. So, you know, congrats to all these players. Congrats to, you know, Nick Hostetler, who's, I think, taken some abuse. And we're going to talk to Mark Gonzalez a little bit about that and whether there was like an organizational mandate to add some developed college players into that system but i mean look if you look back into Costello's four drafts they might lack a little bit of upside but i think there's going to end up being a lot of big leaguers from those drafts like so you know you take that many college players you don't get stars all the time but you know you have guys that can make a 26 man and here's three more of them in the majors uh right here not helping the white Sox though obviously
1: yeah i mean the the Steel Walker example is, is just the way baseball works. I mean, last year it looked like his career numbers, you know, considering where he was uh, suggested that he would be a minor league filler or at the very, very best uh, back end of the roster type player for a big league club. But congratulations to Steel Walker because he's definitely earned it. He's done a great job uh, with the Rangers this year. So he earned it. Absolutely earned it. If you look at his numbers, they've, they've been much improved and that's not what the White Sox were seeing. And, Again, we we get it too. Like we were trying to justify the moves, and in hindsight, the Nolan Mazzara, they just just bad, just so bad. Uh, But when when it comes to the depth in the outfield, the White Sox had sort of a log jam because at the time, Mike Rodolfo, Blake Rutherford were still uh, pretty well considered. Obviously, Louis Robert, and we don't have to go down the list, but Adam Engel too were a part of things. And uh, good times, good times, James. All right, so. Let's move on now to Mark Gonzalez. I mean, that was uh, James. This is a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to this interview, and I'm glad that you were able to land Gonzalez because I mean, this is this is one of the best.
2: He is. He's one of the best in the business. You know, I said it on Twitter. I think it's uh, I think it's a shame that he's not employed somewhere full time, like as a beat writer covering baseball in this town, because he's one of the best ones. Uh, I know how the industry works. I you know I know some of the layoffs and some of the things that have happened. And, you know, I'm not here to take somebody else's job away, but I mean, Mark Gonzalez is pretty much as good as it gets. And him doing freelance work, uh, seems kind of, kind of insane to me, but he was, he was nice enough to join us. And, uh, you know, the conversation will be really good.
1: We're going to take a break. When we come back, Mark Gonzalez, formerly of the Tribune, as well as the daily Herald. If you are a patron to socks machine, you won't get any ads. So
0: stay right here. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at Babbel.com slash BlueWire. That's 60% off at Babbel.com slash BlueWire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash BlueWire. Rules and restrictions apply. It is our delight to welcome on Mark Gonzalez,
1: formerly of the Chicago Tribune and also spend time with the Daily Herald. If you're a fan of Chicago sports, you are familiar with the name Mark Gonzalez. He's been a part of this city's heart and soul covering the White Sox and Cubs for over a decade, two decades now. And Mark, it's a pleasure to have you on the Future Sox podcast. We're really looking forward to this conversation.
3: Thanks for having me on. I enjoy your work.
1: That means a lot to us. Uh, Let's start at the beginning, where it started, what you learned, what were some of the experiences that molded you as a journalist in this city?
3: Well, I was very lucky. I actually grew up in the Bay Area uh, covering high schools and Uh, Talk about a small world. One of the guys I covered, or I covered his last football game, and I do remind him of it on occasion, is Kenny Williams, who was a a terrific two-sport athlete at Mount Pleasant High School in San Jose, California. And remember his last football game, their quarterback was ineligible for the playoffs, and it came down to a two-point conversion attempt. And they ran uh, Kenny on a jet sweep, and I was standing right on the sidelines when he got hit and stopped short of the goal lines. (laughs) So I I try not to bring it up too much to Kenny, but in regards to my career, I'm very fortunate. I started covering high schools, you know, writing six-inch football gamers, and uh, the boss I had at the time, Chuck Hildebrand, uh, really liked my work and gave me more work, and I really uh, dove into it, uh, made the most of opportunities, and I had quite a few great opportunities along the way. Uh, and I made the most, of covering high schools, becoming a high school sports editor for a couple of years, uh, learning all facets of the business as well as, uh, when I covered baseball games, I was lucky, uh, covered in the Bay area. There were a lot of good teams, good players and and good scouts. And I'd always picked their brains on what they were seeing. And that eventually helped me down the road when I started covering baseball on a full-time basis in 1992 with the San Francisco Giants, uh, working for the San Jose Mercury news. And one of the guys I had, uh, in my coverage area was a guy named Barry Bonds, so um, that certainly helped quite a bit. Knowing his background and and watching his cr- career progress, and then uh, fast forward, and in 2004, um, the Tribune inquired uh, about my services. I was covering the the Diamondbacks at the time, and, and was elevated a national uh, baseball writer there. And uh, I just gotten married, and thought it'd be a little uncomfortable to uproot us all back out here, even though my wife grew up in Highland Park. So a year later, the same opportunity comes about. And I certainly uh, was interested and we moved out here and it's been great ever since.
2: So, you know, you've covered multiple drafts, obviously, as a beat writer reporter. I'm going to get to that. But, you know, you mentioned something and I have to ask since we have you, what was it like covering Barry Bonds?
3: Never a dull moment. And you saw how talented he was in high school, but he still wasn't the finished product. And I remember his last high school game it was a semifinal sectional game and he was playing center field, which a lot of people don't realize he, he played center field and was very good. And uh, I was at San Jose municipal stadium and he airmailed a, a throw to home plate and it hit the screen on the fly. And you kind of told yourself, well, he's good, but uh, there's some room for growth. And he went in the second round by the giants. There was a squabble over uh, the size of his bonus uh, difference of about only 5,000, but decided to go to Arizona state where he became even better, but he certainly had a flair. I actually covered him in football too. He didn't play his senior year, but he covered, excuse me, he played his junior year and was a pretty good punt returner and receiver. But uh, looking back, I think he made the right choice going to baseball.
1: (laughs) Mark, you said you were in Arizona prior to coming to Chicago. Were you a part of the 2001 Diamondbacks club covering that team?
3: I did cover that team and it was quite fascinating. It actually uh, was a lesson learned for me that really, uh, grasp the moment as a journalist and just absorb every everything you can, because you remember 9-11 had occurred about six weeks, seven weeks prior to the, uh, game seven of the world series. And so that kind of took on a, a, a added meaning as well as to just the, the emotional aspect, the healing process of this country, and also a Diamondback team that was uh, rolling the dice. You think of all the veterans that were on that team and, and it was uh, all or nothing that year And it was certainly a fun team to cover. Uh, And at the same time, you know, they're going up against a Yankee team. I think uh, 90 percent, at least 90 percent of America was rooting for because uh, they were the Yankees and you had 9-11 right there down the street. So a lot of emotions involved, and I kind of didn't grasp what was happening at the time. And I really regretted that I didn't soak in more observations that were going on and certainly i've been lucky enough to cover two more world series champions in the white Sox and cubs and been able to do that since
2: yeah so i was going to ask you have covered three world series teams so these guys should be they should be jumping down the door <laughs> to hire mark gonzalez as beat writers so you can win the world series it's crazy that's,
3: that's it doesn't good. work that so, way though i, I didn't strike out anybody no, yeah, hit a home yeah. run
2: so another team with, with world series aspirations, these 2022 white Sox. we're, we're thrilled here to be covering prospects right now, just because of, you know, how rough it is watching these games, but how surprised are you just by this start? I mean, obviously they got 110 games left. Like it's possible. They're in a bad division. How, how surprised are you by the start? And just, I, is there any confidence that they could turn it around and get back? I'm in getting the state? more
3: surprised at what's developing or what hasn't developed, especially, uh, the lack of hitting that's been alarming. Um, we all know that the, their farm system's a little thin. That's the product of all the graduations to the big league club. And, and, you know, I think every executive will tell you the toughest thing to do is win and develop at the same time. And they're finding that out right now. I think they're blessed that, you know, they have somebody like Marco Patty, who's really identified a lot of great talent in Latin America and, uh, a lot of these guys are hitting the ground running, doing a terrific job, so they can be thankful for that. Drafts always uh, a work in progress, especially when you draft guys and identify what you think who you think is the right guy, and then you have to trade them to another club to bring back a uh, uh, Lance Lynn, somebody of that magnitude. So they've taken some hits there, but some of it's understandable because they've had to uh, get guys to identify needs on the big league club. So since
1: covering the White Sox, I'm curious your opinion. Watching them in 05 through the early 2010s to now, even as an observer, how would you define the way the White Sox go about their business in terms of building a roster, the way that they've evolved in the international market and now currently in their scouting and development department, adding all the analytics. And also in terms of draft philosophy, it's changed with Mike Shirley now at the helm. Just curious what some of your observations are in that regard from the White Sox early to the White Sox now.
3: I thought it really started to change shortly uh, uh, before I left the beat in the middle of 2013. They're trying to get more. Uh, I want to be careful when I say there's more baseball players as re- in say as in the past, they were more, you know, athletic guys. Remember the Jared Mitchell types that were, you know, could do it all and hadn't played uh, full-time baseball. And I think now you see more guys that are, are, are true baseball guys, you know, the ceiling is something you know that's up for question, but um, it's really changed quite a bit. We see the analytical side a, a lot more now than we did in the past, and they've certainly addressed that at, as have other teams in baseball. But going back to 2005, it, it, that was a fun team to cover, but there were a lot of what uh, you say true true baseball players. I mean, Canerico was a baseball guy, Brzezinski was a baseball guy. You look at the pitchers, Burley was a baseball guy. So was Garland. Jermaine was a true baseball player in right field. The only guy you, know, you might say he was all-around athlete was Posetnik with the speed and all that, but he got injured quite a bit. But I think he'd tell you he loved baseball.
2: Yeah, so one of those guys that you, you know, you didn't mention him, but I will, Keenan Walker, Mike, uh, Mike covered him with the Windy City Thunderbolts, like, you know, shortly after the White Sox drafted him. So that that's a story we often talk about here. So, you know, just the draft is something that we, we cover a lot, quite frankly, um, you know, as a beat writer, someone covering the sport, you know, like your first draft, you know, like in the two thousands, how has the draft changed or even just covering it as, as a beat writer I mean, you went to the Cubs, you know, Chris Bryant and it, it became, it's more of a event now, you know, it's never going to be what the NFL draft is, but it's a lot different. So how did that change? Like as a beat writer covering it then, and then, you know, now.
3: I think the way the way it is now, especially with the slotting system, changes the landscape quite a bit and has. And some scouting directors I've talked to become very frustrated by the slotting system because it gives, they feel, uh, uh, an advantage to the teams that don't invest on those high risks like they used to. So it kind of frustrates them quite a bit. But I, I've always been in the feeling, and it's probably goes against the trend of a lot of people's thinking that. I think you should connect on the first-round pick. There's so many good players in the country – that you should be able to identify that guy who gets to the major leagues and helps you in some some form. Now, granted, some guys have injuries and and you can't forecast those in most cases unless he's got a mechanical flaw. But I really do believe you should be able to connect on that first round pick. Now, after that, a lot of things come into play. But I think there's just so many good players in the nation that you should be able to identify the right guy.
2: What do you remember from covering the Chris Sale draft. I mean obviously, you know, coming into that draft, you know, he was seen as, you know, not the 13th overall pick. He was kind of a top 5 guy and whatever. There were the issues about money and the way he throws or whatever, but then he fell to 13 and signed for slot and he was right up here. So, what are your uh, what do you remember about that night and just I guess covering when they took him?
3: I was stunned that he kept slipping and slipping and slipping and then I thought, well, he's right there for the White Sox and I I compliment the organization and his representatives because um, where he went uh, was somewhat alarming, but there's always a feeling if you're good enough, you'll make the majors and, and make up that money right away. And he probably made up what he lost in, in money where he was supposed to be projected in a hurry. He made that that money right away because he was on the big league roster for almost two months. So you you prorate that that rookie salary and add it to his bonus. He's about right there where he should have got in the first place. So. Big, big kudos to the the Sox organization and to his representatives for seeing that and getting a deal done.
2: Well, and now it seems like you know, that obviously happens, right? Like we, we cover a draft and the White Sox give Jared Kelly $3 million in the second round. That's one of these things that's kind of arranged ahead of time. And they push him to that spot. It doesn't seem like that happened with Chris Sale. He just like kind of started falling and they capitalized, which made it a little bit different. And obviously they put him on the big league roster. You can't do that anymore. That was a big part of it. So then I think your last draft on the White Sox beat was, uh, tim anderson and you know we kind of talked similarly earlier like they did they had a propensity early on for taking athletes and kenny williams you know i'm just gonna say it like he liked athletes and jerry reinsdorf didn't like spending money on the draft and that's how you end up with the keenan walkers of the world so i think when tim anderson's drafted out of a community college in mississippi it's like oh here we go again but this one uh turned out quite differently obviously
3: yeah but before we talk about tim i want to point out to that remember they always went the safe route too with college pitchers. I mean, two guys that come to mind are uh, Lance Broadway and Kyle McCullough. So, you know, you get what you pay for in some regards if you're going to go that safe college pitcher route. Now, in regards to Tim, you know, the the negative stuff on him was regards to his feeling. And, and a lot of people thought, well, he's a terrific athlete, but we're not sure about shortstop. And Tim, to his credit, really quelled those questions right away with his feeling and throwing. And I give the guy a lot of credit because I just remember – there was an avalanche of criticism and skepticism over his feeling abilities. And he, he addressed those right away. So tip of the cap to him and, and Sox development for taking care of that right away.
1: Mark, when it comes to speaking to scouts, now that the draft is pushed back a little bit, you know, because we're, what we're doing right now is a couple of months prior to the draft or a few weeks prior to the draft, I should say, is it seems like, you know, the scouts have already done all their homework and now they're moving on to the next year's class. I just wonder what that's like looking ahead so far into the future while also trying to balance the the current year's draft class while also trying to learn about what you have in front of you.
3: It's funny you say that because um, I was in the Bay Area a couple of weeks ago for a wedding and, and stopped by um, Stanford to see a couple of guys, as well as um, the son of a friend who plays for USC. And I ran into a scout. Let's just say he works for an American League Central Club. I won't say which team. And uh, we started talking players. And then he said, well... I might go across the street and watch this kid Henry Bolte from Palo Alto High play because they're playing about an hour later. And quite frankly, you can cross one street and get the Palo Alto High from Stanford. That's how close it is. So he had mentioned that more information now than ever. You got to get as many set of eyes you can on these guys because between the end of their seasons, the draft—that's a good month—and you don't have. You only have so many times to watch these guys in person. Therefore, it behooves this guy as well as all the other scouts to watch these guys as much as they, as they can until their seasons end, because after that, it's a different landscape, you know, just to watch them work out or, you know, they have that MLB scouting combine, which only tells you so much. And you can bet that there's a lot of advisors telling their guys not, not to perform. So, so they don't hurt their draft stock. So it's very important now, especially with these, the NCAA tournament starting that these teams get as many looks as they can on these guys, uh, prior to the draft, which isn't going to happen for another, what, five, six weeks. So it's a different landscape. I'll tell you that.
2: So, you know, you were, you were still, you were on the Cubs beat at the time when the, you know, the White Sox switched over from Nick Hostetler to, to Mike Shirley, you know, they, they didn't hire Mike Shirley right away. They interviewed some people and then ended up going internally, but Nick Hostetler oversaw four drafts um, during the rebuild. And, you know, whether it was an organizational mandate or not, you know, they did kind of, they go away, they went super college heavy in those drafts. And, you know, part of me understands like you want to get a bunch of baseball players in your system and insulate your system and get, but you know, they've had a lot of contributors from those years, but it kind of lacks upside. So I guess, what are your thoughts in hindsight? And you weren't covering the team, but what, you know, what did you think at the time? If you remember.
3: Well, uh, in regards to Mike Shirley taking over.
2: No, just like oh. that, them deciding to rebuild, but going super college heavy for, it seemed like, you know, a couple straight years, like into that rebuild.
3: Yeah, I, I think I think in some ways they had to do it that way. I thought some of the some of the drafts that they fell short on. I, I won't play, put that all on Doug Lawman. I think there's a lot of voices in that room when it comes to making that pick. You know, certainly Nick had a had an aggressive college type philosophy there. I think I think Nick Madrigal was under his watch, and so was Jake Berger. And and I understand why they took those guys at that spot. And I know that there was some curiousness about the Jake Berger pick, but I think if he was healthy, you'd see why. I mean, the guy I like, I like the guy. I wish he was a little more mobile, but certainly he's had the leg issues. So that's an issue, but I think he's a guy that is a ball player. And I hope for the kid's sake that he stays healthy and, and we'll see what he can do. But um, I understand why, you know, Nick, Nick went about that way. And it's kind of funny looking at last year's draft, how they went uh, the high school way. And I think there's a lot of promise there. So, and a lot of it, too, depends on where you pick and where the, the ceiling is.
1: So, Mark, as you evaluate the organization as a whole, you know, the White Sox were at the top of the list in terms of their prospect status with Michael Kopech and Andrew Vaughn and Luis Robert at the top there. And then they all graduated and now they're at the bottom. However, it seems like there's a handful, at least to us, of really promising prospects. And it just that turn of being top five, now bottom five in the organization while the White Sox window is apparent is, I guess, unscheduled. But when you take a look at the way the organization is structured right now in terms of the talent and even the personnel leading the organization, leading the charge at the higher positions, you mentioned Marco Patti. We talk a little bit about Chris Getz as well as Mike Shirley. What is uh, your confidence level in the way the organization is structured now to suggest that they're going to have success moving forward for multiple years?
3: It's a good question because I think th- there there are signs where they might have success, but I think a big thing is depth right now. And I think it was James Fagan of The Athletic wrote a story, or maybe it was, I'm sorry, it was uh, another blogger, Jim Margolis, had talked about if you're relying on Danny Mendick and upset he's not hitting, that's certainly not a, a good thing. And I, and I understand that it kind of speaks to depth and quality depth. Certainly Mendick's a versatile guy, but Certainly want to, uh, you know, you wish you had prospects at every position that have to wait before they get called up. That's that's usually the way a perfect scenario. That's the way it goes. They don't have that right now because of uh, the graduations and and some injuries and such. So that's kind of setting them back. But I do think there is some promise. I think right now there's kind of a gulf uh, between the big league club talent and, and down in the minors. It's kind of patchy right now. I, I think and at some time soon uh, they'll be able to fill it, but, you know, they got to win now. Well, let's, let's face it. We talk about the Copex and Vons and Roberts and, and Jimenez, but um, that pitching staff, you know, the, the starters, a couple of starters, uh, you know, they have some age on them and they're going to need guys to step in because you're, it's not a hundred percent sure that uh is going to resign with him. I think the expectation is he will, but, Nothing's guaranteed until he signs, so that's one area uh, you got to have some ins- fallback insurance to have right there, as, as well as some parts of the infield as well. So, I think the hope and expectation is that some of these guys, like the Colson Montgomerys and West Cass, will will continue to develop. I I, I kind of like that draft quite a bit, especially with those two guys, high school guys with with, with great talent and, and plenty of upside still there. So. We'll have to wait and see, but I, I think there's a little bit of a, 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 a patchy, patchy work that needs to be filled up at the top.
2: So what were, you know, when Major League Baseball kind of took over, they went to the 20 round draft. Like, you know, I 40 was too many. The, the debate is whether 20 is enough, obviously. And then, you know, just the, the reduction of the minor leagues. What were your thoughts on that when they did it? And then, you know, has that changed at all? Like since you've seen it, I guess, over the last year and a half.
3: Absolutely hate it. I hated it when they, they. Cut it down to, I know COVID cut it down to five rounds, but I, I still think twenty is not enough. I really wish there was one more layer of, of minor leagues. You just never know when that guy might pop. And I know the odds are long, but I think thirty would have been would have been fair. Uh, for one thing, you wouldn't see uh, the Sox draft some of their kids uh, of, of employees. That 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 got eliminated by, by cutting it to twenty rounds. But I do think that. It hurts everybody, not just the Sox in regards to that. And I think 30 rounds is fair enough because you have some guys that are that are obviously filling guys that have no chance of making the majors. But there's always that guy that might need a little more seasoning. And maybe he's not the greatest student and and he majors in baseball. So why not expand the 30 rounds where he can devote all his time to to, uh, baseball and, and not waste some of his time in the classroom when, you know, he's not a student.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest issues and, you know, we cover the teams last year, I don't know how much you paid attention, but like the Canapolis team in low A. I mean, the Sox sent a bunch of young guys there that have no business playing in a ball, but there's nowhere else to send them because, you know, your, your short season rookie was, was eliminated in great fall. So it's either short season, Arizona or Canapolis, which is a, a huge step. I mean, it used to be double a was, you know, the big indicator. Right. Lately, it's been it's been low A because there's guys that just don't belong there, and it's sink or swim time, and a lot of guys sink.
3: And I think it's made by decision makers who don't realize the maturity rate of players or how much time is needed to really have a fair chance at each level. You know, I, I always remember there was an old saying: it takes what a thousand at bats for a guy to have any chance of being ready for the majors. But the bigger issue is down in those lower levels where they're away from home for the first time. Uh, especially the guys in warm weather got to play in cold weather for the first time. There's a lot of, a lot of factors involved in that. And, and, and they weren't considered when they made these decisions. And they also hurt the small communities, which I think is the biggest blow because I think a lot of these small communities look forward to having baseball in their towns, having a, having kids they can host. I mean, that's, that's gone by the wayside because of COVID, but it was really something for the town to rally around during the summer months.
1: Mark, I, I got a couple more for you. I really appreciate your time. You've been very generous. What was it like working with the White Sox front office? Just some of the personalities in Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn while you were there.
3: I enjoyed it. I mean, certainly you bump heads now, now and then, you know, looking looking for for more answers than what they're just giving you. But, you know, I've, I think I've had a healthy relationship with Kenny Williams, just knowing him the way I do. Um, we can tell each other what we think of, of each other's opinions sometimes and, and move on. I take it personally. Rick's pretty direct, straightforward. Uh, uh, he's, he's got a fascinating background uh, with his law work and then uh, working in an agency briefly. But I think he understands the structure of baseball from all, all facets. So that helps quite a bit.
1: What was an experience that just has never left your thoughts or your memories covering that ball club?
3: I think it was like shortly after the World Series and Kenny Williams was talking uh, to us about what it meant for a lot of employees and their parents and grandparents. And, and Kenny was talking about his secretary and how she went to her father's grave and put a White Sox banner on his grave as to like, hey, we did it. Uh, we're champions and, and you're a champion, dad. And that was kind of the, the theme that has always stuck with me to this time, just how It meant for generations and especially uh, then, you know, I I, I can understand why a a lot of White Sox fans are tired of of hearing about the Cubs. And I think that was the the moment where Cub fans could say, hey, we don't care what happens on the north side. Um, This is our time. And and it really, really stood out that um, White Sox community could really rally and enjoy the moment and, and not care about anything else in the world.
1: Mark, thanks so much for sharing all your insight. Any advice for young journalists out there these days?
3: Soak up as much information as you can. Learn a second language. Uh, polish it up very well. Oh, and one and one more thing I want to mention about the farm system is um, uh, we've seen some guys get paid over slot. And one guy I'm curious about is, is Dahlquist because um, he's off to a rough start. Paid a lot of money uh, to get him out of his commitment to Arizona. That's one guy to keep an eye on because uh, they can't afford too many slip ups like that right now.
1: No, I'm glad you brought up Andrew Dalquist. We're big fans of Dalquist, or at least I am here on the on the show. What's your impression? Just since we have you, what do you, what do you like about him? What do you dislike about him?
3: I I, I see the upside still, um, but that ERA. I know it's only been nine starts. It's it's a little high right now. I I can understand. him. I and mean, he had a price and he got it. So you know, tip of the cap to him. But um, gotta be careful sometimes college is the is the best way to go although if he went to arizona he'd have brian anderson as one of his assistant coaches so that <laughs> yeah. would have gone
1: <laughs> <laughs> pretty awesome mark gonzalez thanks so much for your time really appreciate
3: everything you do take care guys thank you for having me
1: that was mark gonzalez joining myself and james fox here on the future Sox podcast giving us a lot of insight love his stories about covering the Diamondbacks and and working with Barry Bonds, and then a lot of the relationships that he developed within the White Sox organization. I mean, it's just insight that you just don't get unless you're face-to-face in the industry there. So Mark was kind enough to give us his time. And I hope you enjoyed listening to his perspective uh, as a journalist, even giving some advice to young journalists out there. So hopefully you learned something because we sure did. Next week, we will talk to you again on Tuesday. Again, every Tuesday, we drop podcasts here on the Future Sox podcast, part of the Blue Wire Network and SoxMachine.com. For James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin and Mark Gonzalez. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you all next week.